everybody, I'm Richard Kratos. I hope that you're feeling happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Celeste Bell and Paul Sung, co-directors of a great new music documentary called Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché. It's the story of Bell's mother, the legendary punk rock singer Polystyrene. More on that just a little bit later on in the show. We'll also get to know Clark Bacco. You know her as Wayne's love interest Rosie on the television series Letterkenny. Now you can see her in I Want You Back, very funny rom-com, now playing on Amazon Prime. We'll get to her in just a few minutes. First up, though, a couple of questions. What's the price of sentimental value? Is that mixtape from your first boyfriend worth more than the vintage typewriter that you got from a philanderer? My guest, Haley McGee, a Canadian living in London, England, has written a book called The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, a memoir about her attempt to pay off credit card debt by selling gifts from her exes. In the book, she tries to answer some of the questions that I just asked by calculating exactly how much romantic relationships cost in time, money, and effort. Haley McGee joins me via Zoom from her home in England. Let's uh, kind of start at the at the way back here, we won't start exactly with the book. You describe yourself as a third generation yard sale aficionado, which is uh, something I think uh, is crucial to the understanding of this book. The other thing is, is that your mother was a molecular biologist and she uh, forced you, as according to you, to take math until you were 18 because she thought it was very important. You put those two things together and you have the bedrock of uh, what this book is all about. So tell me about yard sales, then we'll move on to math, then we'll move on to the book. So yes, those two things together absolutely constitute uh, the book that would become the ex-boyfriend yard sale. You nailed the foundation. My parents aren't necessarily yard sale people or secondhand people themselves, but my mother's father, my grandfather, was an absolute addict. Mm -hmm. And so was his daughter, my aunt Linda, my mom's sister. And so I have a lot of fond memories of my childhood, cruising around neighborhoods, looking for signs, pointing to yard sales, learning how to haggle with people and searching for treasures in the rubble, quote unquote. Uh, and through that, I really developed a kind of interest in old stuff, other people's stuff, uh, uh, the stories connected to objects. And another thing that my Aunt Linda likes to point out is that yard sales make you feel rich because things are so cheap that it's a way it's a <laughs> it's a way to really stretch a dollar. Right. So there's great, great pleasure in that as well. And then so that was laid in quite early. And then, yeah, as you said, my mom has a Ph.D. in molecular biology and she was insistent that I take math all the way through high school. I got to stop science after grade 10, but I wasn't stopping math. Uh, she wanted me to have a well-rounded education. And I'm so grateful for that because as an artist, I went to theater school and I started writing, you know, you're immediately applying for grants and you have to do budgets. And because I'd done math only, you know, up to grade 12, um, the highest I could do it, but I wasn't afraid of math. I'm not afraid of numbers. I'm not particularly good at it, but I don't have, uh, there's a professor who made a term, mathemophobia, and it affects a lot of uh, women and girls. 
uh, in particular. But yes, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm not afraid of numbers. And uh, I thank my mom for that. My brother is a yard sale aficionado, and every year for <laughs> Christmas, I end up with things that he's collected over the years, and and that always comes on Boxing Day. There will be an email or a phone call from him saying, uh, "So I I only paid a dollar for that, but look at it on eBay. It's like ninety five bucks on eBay." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is that's how you it. Stretch a dollar and feel like a millionaire at a yard sale. Yeah, you pay with your time and energy, not <laughs> your wallet. <laughs> so the the idea that both of these uh, coalesce to come together in uh, the book is that a few years ago you had kind of an awkward conversation with your credit card uh, company. You owed them. You live in England. You're Canadian. You live in England. You owed them ten thousand pounds, uh, which is quite a lot of money. And yes. they were like, "We want this money," and you didn't know really how to come up with it. So. You blurted out, well, I'm going to have a yard sale. That's how I'll come up with it. Is that just something you pulled out of the back of your head, a memory of Aunt Linda and your grandfather? Absolutely. It was a knee-jerk response to, I was kind of bartering with Visa and I was saying, well, look, you know, what can you do for me? Could you not charge me interest this month? And right. they said, the only way we'll not charge you interest is if you prove to us that you're doing something to pay down your debt. And so my first thought was, I'll have a yard sale. And then I quickly looked around and realized the only things I could actually sell had been given to me by different people that I dated over the years. You're listening to Haley McGee on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Ex-Boyfriend's Yard Sale, is available wherever you buy fine books. Yeah, it's not like you, uh, I'll sell my jewels. I will sell all my jewels <laughs> or all my fleet of cars. Because no, exactly. it, does, it, it does seem a little last ditchy, a kind of a last oh, yeah. ditch effort. Did you feel that at the time? What was your, after the words came out of your mouth, what was your initial thought where you're like, oh, no, here we go. Now I have to do this. I did think my first thought was, OK, what? Okay, I've got a necklace. I've got a bicycle. I've got a vintage typewriter. Uh, I've got a musical instrument. I sort of picked the, the things that I thought were worth the most first. Um, and then the more I sat with this idea of posting things for, first, I was like, I can't have a front yard yard sale. It's not a thing in the UK. They have car boot sales. I don't even have a yard where I live. There's not the culture of yard sales the same way. So then I thought, well, I could put the things on uh, Gumtree, which is like the British Kijiji. And then I was talking to a friend and they were like, no, 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 no. This is your next show, Haley. You have to make a show about this. And then I, and then I was like, absolutely I do. Because a show, I, I can make a show about trying to monetize love or heartbreak and I can sell tickets to it. And so I can actually get a lot more money from these objects by selling tickets to a show about them than by actually selling them uh, themselves. And so part of this then is because the book that we're talking about now began its life as a, as a, a one person show. Yes. And so part of this though, when you're putting it together, you have to come up with an algorithm. This is where studying math all the way through at your mother's insistence, I guess, comes into play, but you bring in a, an actual mathematician to figure out a formula about what 
love is worth, essentially, what heartbreak is worth, what, uh, you know, the, the various elements of the relationship all kind of come together to create a value. So is a bicycle worth more than a vintage typewriter? Well, it depends on who gave it to you. Is that the, the idea? That's absolutely the idea, um, along with 85 other factors that made their way into this mathematical formula for the cost of love. Things like who broke up with who, how often you cried during the relationship, how reliable the person was, but that's in relation to, uh, relation to, did they perform any big romantic gestures for you? We looked at how good the sex was. Did you like spending time with their friends and family? What percentage of the relationship was long distance? What percentage of the relationship, um, what percentage of your life did the relationship occupy at the time when you broke up? Because a two-year relationship when you're 20 is a lot more significant than a two-year relationship when you're 34. Right. All these kinds of things were discussed with the mathematician. We figured out how to quantify them, how to assign a numeric value to them. We talked about the relationship between the different factors. So if you had a lot of sex, but it wasn't particularly good sex, that probably shouldn't get as high a ranking as a lot of very good sex, those kind of things. And, and yes, go on. Well, well, did it make you think more deeply about these relationships. I mean, it, it obviously has this turned into a show and a book, but uh, you know, it sounds like a funny idea, but it must've prompted, uh, and it is a funny idea, but it must've yeah. prompted you to think differently about the past relationships and possibly moving forward uh, any, any other relationships you may enter into. Absolutely. It did kind of start as a cute idea for a show and it quickly became so much more than I had anticipated. And I interviewed some of my exes for the project. And there's my high school boyfriend who I call a uh, mixtape in the, in the book. He gave me a mixtape and I call them by the name of the objects that they gave me. And during my conversation with him, he apologized for breaking up with me and dating someone else the next day. Let's not worry too much about the timing of that. But um, he apologized and he said, I've always felt really badly about that. And here we were 32, you know, on Skype for the first time since we were 16. And I got off the phone and I rummaged around for my journal from that time. And I had blocked out so much of the angst that I'd gone through in that breakup. And I say in the book that, Working on this project, I uncovered memories I didn't realize that I didn't want to remember. Things that were just so kind of excruciatingly embarrassing. Yeah, or painful or or um, tender too. Personally, what do you do with those memories that are either embarrassing, painful, or, or occasionally tender? Well, a comedian that I love, Naomi Ekparrigan, says that um, the way to not be embarrassed about something is to tell everyone. So the really embarrassing ones I tried to put, <laughs> put into the show and put into the book. Um, and, and to be totally honest, reconnecting with my exes, I would fall a little bit back in love with each of them. And then I'd start going into the spreadsheet where the mathematician and I were housing all the numbers for the formula and increasing their scores. And actually she had to then institute a rose tint corrector for any X that I interviewed to counteract my nostalgia. So 
it started to really positively sway the way I was assessing our our history by having positive interaction in the present. When you're 16 and you have a breakup, you'll never date anyone again, or you're you feel worthless or something. It is it, the, the the sky comes crashing down. Less so perhaps later on because you have more life experience. Yeah, and I thought about that a lot. Um, looking back on that, that high school relationship, because I really was in love and I had a big argument with my mathematician about it. Actually, she said, there's no way that's real love. And I'm so offended. I really think that relationship taught me that love is not conditional. And up to that point in my life, the love I had received was really from my parents, of course, friends, but that kind of intense romantic love I remember thinking in high school, you know, it's a, it's going to be a little bit boring not dating anybody else, but I guess that's just the price I have to pay for having found this so early. And yeah, it wasn't just the the dissolution of that relationship that was so hard to swallow, but that that someone could love you and that that could go away is a possibility into adulthood. I think it was a real it's a real kind of coming of age experience. Yeah. What were the reactions of the ex-boyfriends as you reached out to them? Oh, well, I interviewed five of the eight that I talk about, and they were all very amenable to it. Uh, but you'll notice I, I, I only interviewed five of eight. There's so three, <laughs> I was perhaps a wimp about that. Uh, and two of them have seen the stage show. And one of those two sat in the front row and gave the standing ovation, which was so uh, nerve wracking, but also really fun. What goes through your mind when that happens? It's nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. It's it. It makes me feel like, should I make some changes to the text on the fly? Because I wrote it and I'm performing it. I do have those, that freedom. Although with the ex-boyfriend yard sale, the live stage show, it's a very complicated show kind of verbally and physically. It's a very athletic piece running around all over the place and charts flying out of cupboards. And so if I let myself get uh, distracted, the whole thing can kind of come tumbling down. And so I think some kind of performer instinct kicks in or some kind of racehorse instinct kicks in. That's just like, I just need to get from here to my destination and the blinders are on. Um, so I think that that training has served me really well. I'm going to presume, I suppose I shouldn't, but I'm going to presume that perhaps you have ex-boyfriends on both sides of the Atlantic uh, now. Did you find a difference in the gifts that perhaps you were given uh, from uh, one side to the other? You're from Canada. You live in the UK now. Was there a difference in any of that sort of thing? That is such a good question. I haven't thought about it like that before. The gifts... I've always thought about it in terms of the gifts really reflecting where I was at in terms of my age mm -hmm. rather than location. But to be fair, I only have the, all the exes are from Canada or elsewhere. And I have a boyfriend now in the UK, uh, but no exes in the UK. 
So now I'm thinking, what, what's my boyfriend given me? Has it been different? And he's given me a lot of clothing and no one else has really dared to give me, I have a, a t-shirt that I talk about in the book, but it's sort of a, it was his t-shirt. He gave it to me to sleep in. And yeah, my boyfriend has given me some really nice clothing, which has been a very new experience for me. And I, and I remember as a little kid um, rooting around in my parents' closet and finding this beautiful skirt. And I was like, mom, what's this? And she's like, oh, your dad got that for me. And I always thought that was so romantic. So I'm so glad I'm now a person who's receiving clothes from their partner. You're listening to Haley McGee on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, is available now wherever you buy fine books. The reaction from other people who have seen the show and read the book, uh, how have people, uh, are, do, are more people using the 85-point algorithm uh, to assess their pasts now? Or what is the reaction being? Well, I think the reaction has been you know, warmingly really positive. I think the book and the show really resonate with anybody who's come out of a breakup wondering, is the cost of love in fact worth it? And should I risk it again? So that's been fantastic. As if yet, no one has told me that they've managed to use the formula. You can actually cut the formula out of the book that's being published in North America. I've included it, the back of the book. You can cut it out, you can tape it together, you can stick it on your wall and see all the different variables. Uh, but so far, no, no one's told me that they've, they've, uh, they've used it. I do have to confess though, the formula is at this point very much tailored to my value system. So things that I prize above other things have more weight in this formula. And my mathematician and I were talking about, wouldn't it be amazing if we had some kind of interactive website where people could do a kind of survey about their value system and then enter their object and then enter all the data about their object and get a price for their sentimental item based on their value system, but just not quite there yet with the technology. Well, I see a mixtape versus a bicycle for instance, they both mm -hmm. have a, a certain value, right? A bicycle yeah. is very practical. You can get back and forth to work on it, go to school, whatever it might be. Uh, it, it, it's transport, it's a useful thing. But a mixtape, people labor over mixtapes. You don't give someone a mixtape that you just throw together. You plan the songs, you plan an order, you hide little messages in the lyrics <laughs> that are that are woven throughout. Uh, and, and it's a very special thing. So I would value a mixtape, someone who has put together a quality mixtape over a bicycle. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's an unreplaceable thing. Those handmade unreplaceable items really are priceless and they capture, they capture the essence of a relationship in mm. them. Whereas a functional object doesn't quite do that the same way. And how long have you lived in the UK? I've lived in the UK for five and a half years now. What is it about that that keeps you there? Well, that... It's where you live. A, that's a very good question. I moved because I felt the pull. I didn't have a good reason really to move other than I'd been touring a lot internationally as an actor and writer. And 
I was doing a residency at a theater in London called the Battersea Art Center in 2014. And I said to someone, I really like it here. I like the scene. I like the people my age are creating work and touring it as the kind of main thrust of their career in the theater, which just isn't possible in Canada the same way because it's so big and so empty. And they said, you can move here. You can get a visa and move here. And it just hadn't occurred to me that I was allowed to live in another country. And once I realized that, I just kind of, it felt like I, mountains moved out of the way for me to do it. And so here I am and I'm making my solo shows. I do a ton of commercial voiceover work. That's been the bread and butter, which has been extraordinary and which I did not do until after I moved. And I continue to act. I did an episode of Doctor Who, which was a really incredible experience, probably yeah. the most notable acting thing. And now I've written a book and it's just become, it's become home. We'll see how long I last here, but right now I'm, I'm still really enjoying it. In this segment, we meet Celeste Bell, co-director of a great new music documentary called Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché. It's the story of Bell's mother, legendary punk rock singer Polystyrene, whose band X-Ray Specs were one of the first punk rock bands to find commercial success with their album, Germ-Free Adolescence. The documentary is a rarity. It's a movie about punk rock that casts its eyes beyond the musical anarchy to portray the real person behind the music. I like this movie a lot, and you can find it in theaters and on VOD this weekend. I began the interview by asking Celeste Bell when she realized what a rich legacy her mother left behind. Here's Celeste Bell. I was aware from an early age that she was a musician, but of course, you know, you take that for granted. So you kind of just assume that your experience is everyone's experience. So, you know, I guess I just thought, oh, well, that's normal. Most people must have parents who are singers or whatever. Um, so it wasn't until I was older that I kind of understood that what my mum did was unusual um, and that she wasn't just a singer, that she she was actually quite famous for a period. Um, and it was about when I was about 15 years old, I bought the album uh, Gen Free Adolescence because my mum didn't really listen to her own music at all. So I kind of had to go and find it for myself. And it was, uh, I was like, wow, this is just fantastic. I was really impressed, you know, because it was, it really resonated with me, especially at that age, you know, because my mum was a teenager when she was making that music. So, you know, I, as a teenager at the time, I really related to it um, and I was just really impressed. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't really until then that I kind of, knew the extent of her influence. X-Ray Specs, which, who was the band, didn't record a lot. And there, there's only, yeah. well, there's two records in total, but one is the classic, the 1977 album. Did it give you an insight to your mother that you hadn't had before? Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, my mum, when she, after she left X-Ray Specs, she joined the Hare Krishna movement in the 80s. And, and a lot of her music post uh post Krishna was kind of spiritually uh, inspired. Um, and that's kind of what I'd grown up with. So when I listened to, uh, to Germ Free Adolescence and those themes, um, you know, of like sci-fi modernism, you know, modernism, uh, kind of consumerism. And it was very like dystopian, you know, mm. or like, you know, post, um, post, not apocalypse, but yeah, kind of, it was, it was 
read like listening listening to it was I was listening to the album at the same time that I was at school kind of reading you know these books like um Animal Farm and uh or I was reading like Brave New World and things like that so it was kind of like oh my god I I kind of thought my mum was just so uh ahead of her time you know in terms of what she was doing musically because of these themes yeah that she was exploring that you don't really find that in in music, you know, popular music or punk music. It was very unusual, and I was, yeah, I was able to recognize how unusual that was. I was a teenager when that record came out and loved it, and I loved a lot of the music that was coming from England at that time, and a lot of it was angry young man music. And then I heard the X Ray Specs album, and it wasn't. Uh, so much that as it was about things like identity and like the song identity is is such an amazingly cool song but nobody else in that in that realm was writing songs like that at the moment and uh, i think that's for me is what made my ears prick up a little bit the music was aggressive the the, the it had the sound that i wanted but it was actually about something a little bit more than a lot of the other punk records that i was buying uh, and trying to wrap my head around. Yeah, definitely. There's, a, I think, a philosophical, you know, I mean, might sound a bit like hyperbole to say that, but um, yeah, there's something philosophical um, about the lyrics, um, which is why musically it belongs in, as you say, it's there's an aggressive sound, there's, it's high energy. You know, my mum always described it as high energy rock and roll because she didn't really like punk the, the word punk she liked she considered them to be actually expects to be a rock and roll band you're listening to celeste bell on the richard krauss show she is the co-director of a film called polystyrene i am not a cliche about her mother punk rock icon polystyrene of the band x-ray specs the music is one thing but the content i think it's it's elevated uh, beyond you know any particular genre of music well, I think the film makes quite clear that it was partially the the lyrical content of her music partially came from uh, always being an outsider in a world of outsiders. You know, punk rock was all about outsiders, but then eventually when you get enough outsiders together, they're all inside and it's a different thing. She still remained, I think, on the outside of that because A, she didn't love the idea of punk rock. She didn't love that. Um, the songs were different. She was a biracial woman in a world that that was very unusual. And she had this wonderfully eccentric way of expressing herself through clothes and, and everything else. And I think that that's what really made her so famous for the, the, the moment that that record came out. Uh, I remember reading about her and hearing the music and thinking there's there's no one else on the planet quite like her right now. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of her ethos, I mean, it was the true punk uh, ethos yeah. because, you know, if we, I think we get confused when we talk about punk, there are all these different people have different things or different ideas of what it is. And part of it is a music, a style of music, but that's only like a small part, I think mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's much more about an attitude and uh, a way of expressing yourself. And it's also about doing things yourself, DIY, do it yourself. Uh, you kind of, you create 
your your own persona and um and you know you step outside of the traditional um you know in terms of art and music you step outside of the traditional industry um in order to kind of you know you you do everything yourself and that's my mum truly lived um lived up to that ethos i think uh, more than than the majority of punks to be honest um in terms of you know she uh came up with the the band's name she uh auditioned the band members herself she designed their clothes she made her own clothes she created her own stage persona she did all the visual artwork for the band herself by hand you know so there was so much more that went into creating x-ray specs than just being a front woman you know it it really was a, a creation the whole thing the band and my mother approached it in that way um but i think because she was so creative um and so in charge of her own self-image that as soon as it kind of got you know she did end up getting a major record deal and she still ended up getting sucked into that big machine uh you know there was that was kind of challenging because um you know people started to to deal with her as as polystyrene when in fact she'd created polystyrene polystyrene was perhaps uh, a character just much like david bowie had ziggy stardust uh, like uh, Meatloaf had the character of Meatloaf, yeah. which was a different thing than he was in in real life. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a much different thing, and it's, it must be difficult as a young person as she was to navigate that kind of fame uh, and and have everything just thrust at you all at once when you had literally just started a performance art piece that all of a yeah. sudden became very popular, and that's that's a that's a tough road to travel, I think. Especially when you're you're so young that your personality is not fully formed. Right. That's why I think so many young artists end up struggling um, when they reach a certain level of fame. They, I think it's a, a kind of there's the sense of themselves um, begins to fracture, um, and I think it's inevitable. Um, you know, if you're young and you're thrust into that world. Polly had her own ideas about everything. She didn't follow trends. She was a woman of color in an industry full of white middle-class men. Nobody else was singing what Polly was singing about. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with the music. I actually started singing because of her. That was Celeste Bell on The Richard Krause Show talking about her mother, Polly Styrene, and the film that she's made about her mother's life. Polly Styrene, I Am a Cliché, now in theaters and on VOD. In this segment, we get to know Clark Bacco. You know her as Wayne's love interest, Rosie, on the hit television series Letterkenny. You've probably seen her in shows like Designated Survivor and The Handmaiden's Tale, or maybe in the film Happy Place. This weekend, you can catch her in I Want You Back, a very funny rom-com now playing on Amazon Prime. She co-stars with Jenny Slate and Charlie Day, and they play people who have been recently dumped by their boyfriend and girlfriend and who will do anything to get them back, even if it means destroying their ex's new relationships. Clark plays Ginny, the new girlfriend who is in the crosshairs. Clark Bacco joined me via Zoom from her home in Los Angeles. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh. And look at her with my boyfriend. This is bad. What the f 
He was the love of my life. Anne is the love of mine. But I'm not so sure that they're gonna realize it, not with these shiny new people around. So what are we supposed to do? We have to break them up. That's crazy. We can't do that. You play someone who runs the local pie shop, the local healthy pie shop, mm -hmm. and the pies look delicious. But I have to start by saying, is there any such thing as a healthy pie? I mean, I haven't tasted one yet, but if you find one, holler. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this is a romantic comedy. And uh, romantic comedies sort of have a formula. It's all about the journey, you know, of, and, and getting to know the characters. Uh, and I think this movie does that so beautifully. Do you have romantic comedies that, that you love? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, I would say crazy, crazy Stupid Love is one that I go back to time and time again. I just think it's I, yeah, I just love a rom-com where everyone comes together at the end and you're just like, oh my God, and that person's related to this person. And ah, I just love that. Um, I also love, 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 think like a man, the first one and the second one, um, how to get, uh, gosh, why am I mixing it up? My brain is so scrambled these days after getting COVID, um, how to lose a guy in 10 days is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, there's just so many good classics from back in the day. And I feel like I Want You Back is going to be one of those classics on that I, list. I think it absolutely could be because the whole thing about a great rom-com is that you have to want to care about the characters. Totally. But I feel like in this movie, a little bit unlike the old school rom-coms we're used to, like I feel like this is where we have found like a very new age way to elevate it, is you're truly rooting for everyone. Yeah. There isn't really anyone, even my character who... If, if this was, if I was playing the archetypal character that would be like the new love interest back in like the late 80s and mm. all through the 90s, they would make you hate me. Yeah, you'd be the villain. I'd be the villain and I'm, I'm not. Like they really make it hard to not like anybody. The chemistry that is between Jenny Slate and Charlie Day oh, in this. God. Tell me a little bit about working with them. A true pleasure, like yeah. simply just both of them are so funny individually and then when you have them together it's just explosive like they riff off each other and I'm not even just talking about the script and when we're on set but just like off screen they're two of the funnier people I've ever encountered in my life um, and I love dad jokes and Charlie Day is the king <laughs> of a good dad joke <laughs> And Jenny's just so, like her humor is so intelligent and quirky and just fun. So yeah, I, honestly, I, I just can't say enough good things. They're just phenomenal number ones to have on a movie. They let us all so just beautifully. Yeah, I don't know. I can gush forever about them. You're listening to Clark Bacco on The Richard Krause Show. Watch her in I Want You Back, now on Amazon Prime. And you're working opposite Scott Eastwood. Tell me a little bit about working uh, with him, because I'm not sure that I've ever seen him in a comedy before. I definitely had not. I'm pretty sure this is his first rom-com. I know I talked to him a little bit about it, and he was just saying like he's seen some come across his desk in the past, but this was the first one that just really got him excited. And I really think it's the perfect character for him. It's just so funny. He just plays it so straight, which really balances out all of his scenes with Charlie. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just really fun to watch. And working with him is such a riot. I've never quite met anybody like him. And 
he'll tell you this himself. So I'm not even, I'm not throwing him under the bus or anything, but right. he will tell you that one of his favorite things in life is awkward moments. And so he will create <laughs> them and then just let you sit in it. And it is so like, once you get used to it, it's just like really funny. But I'm like the first couple of times I was like, I don't know how to take this. I just, uh, but that's what he lives for. You said that earlier that you had COVID. Are you feeling a hundred percent now? Yeah, I would say so. I had it over the holidays, as I imagine most people have gotten hit this time um, with the new variant. Uh, it was rough, but not as bad as it could be. I'm fully vaccinated, so I don't think I got it too bad. I feel like I have a little bit of brain fog, hence the brain scramble I was talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> but other than that, I feel peachy. Did you lose your sense of taste or smell? I thankfully did not because what is life without taste and smell but I did have a bad taste in my mouth for about four days which was awful but it was just four days it passed yeah yeah and now the brain fog will lift and everything will be a-okay again (laughs) yeah I want to break up with you what tell me a little bit about the more you read This is uh, an Instagram show that you have. You're doing some good work there. So tell me a little bit about what that is. You're the first person to ask me about that. Thank you. Um, It was actually something I started doing during the first year of the pandemic when um, all of the Black Lives Matter, um, I don't even, yeah, uprisings. I don't even know what you'd call it at this point, Mm -hmm. but. Uh, yeah, I was just feeling very helpless and, um, depressed to be honest. So I just wanted to put my energy somewhere and I knew that there was a lot for me to learn about my own blackness and being a black woman who now lives in America and even in Canada. And, um, I love reading. And so Uh, I just kind of thought the more you read, the more, you know, so that's why it's Mm. called the more you read. And I just thought about it all started. I I just had an idea to read um, a passage in a book I had been reading called. uh, uh, So you want to talk about race. And I just found this passage I thought was really beautiful. And I read it to my mom. Um, And my mom is white. And it was like very helpful for her to hear it. And it led to great conversation between the two of us. And I was like, oh, that that could be helpful to some people. So I just started, I read a passage and then um, for the next episodes, I just brought on guests of mine, mostly women of color um, who are in the industry and they would choose a passage from a book that they love that deals with race. Um, And then we would just have, and then I would just interview them. We'd have a conversation and it was just a safe space Mm. um, for people to be able to have these conversations and learn and heal. I really just wanted everyone to really feel safe and feel like there was a platform for them to just express. That's really all I wanted to do. That was Clark Bacco on The Richard Krauss Show. Watch her in I Want You Back now on Amazon Prime. Big thanks to Clark for stopping by. Also thanks to Celeste Bell and Paul Sung. Their documentary Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché, is available in theaters and on VOD. My mother was a punk rock icon. People often ask me if she was a good mum. It's hard to know what to say. Also a big thanks to Haley McGee. Her book, The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, is available now wherever you buy fine books. 
Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 